0: So I think it's all about, to me, creativity in HR. You know, it's why I love HR, I think it's, it's fun. If
1: I wasn't having fun, I wouldn't be in this industry. One of the biggest challenges is that people, in general, tend to perceive more risk in taking a business decision than there actually is.
2: You know, one of the things we did right was really focus on, on nailing the problem for consumers the way that they wanted it solved. And I think that in HR, the job
0: is to provide the tools possible to enable employees to be their best, wherever that might be, wherever they are, and to grow in their leadership skills at whatever level they are at.
3: Welcome back to the era, where we've been discussing the employee experience and our hypothesis that it's time to make the employee experience the number one priority for all of our organizations. You may have noticed we've approached these employee experience topics through the lens of our own company values. That's because they are our guide and impact everything we do at Bamboo HR. So, today's theme comes from yet another one of our values, lead from where you are. The problem is, after four episodes, we've already seen plenty of examples of people stepping up to lead. In episode one, Grow from Good to Great, Katie Burke shared about her work on HubSpot's famous culture code, a byproduct of her insatiable desire to talk about and improve HubSpot's culture.
4: I obsess over how am I gonna do this job better than the last job I had, better than the person who you know they could have hired in my place because the reality is HubSpot could have a lot of great CPOs. And so every year I think a lot about how I, can I get personally better this year and how can I make sure my team is better. And I think that commitment to you don't land the job and then stop improving and iterating, you yourself need to scale as a leader. And I think a lot of people forget about that second part.
3: Then in episode two, enjoy quality of life, There was Sarah Jones who, by telling her own story of diversity and leading out to make sure everybody feels included in the workplace, has inspired countless others to do the same.
4: There is definitely a drive to create those cultures where people feel like they're not having to like, put on this armor. I know, you know, that they they wanna see this version of me, so I'm gonna put on this armor, this mask of what I know they want to see. Uh, And we're trying to shift that. We're trying to make it so people can can be themselves.
3: And others like Nivia Chanta from episode three, Make It Count, who took it upon herself to lead her organization's crisis relief efforts and who advocates regularly on behalf of employees everywhere that want to be positive influences in their communities. The company kind of can serve as an impact multiplier of yourself if you know how to get there and if they're open to getting there. So where do we go from here? Well, you're about to find out. From a smart sock created by college students to Coke's game-changing freestyle machines to the San Diego Zoo, today, we fully embrace the theme, lead from where you are. We'll see it in action and learn from experts who are masters of enabling this value in their organizations. Here's one of our producers, Brenton Williamson, with part one, peace of mind.
4: My wife and I recently welcomed a new little infant into the world. And for many of you with children, you'll understand the moment where you find yourself leaning over a bassinet at 2 a.m. listening for the sounds of a breathing baby. So if you hear a little tiredness in my voice, well, you know why. For some of us, the stress is just too much. So every night around 7 p.m., we slip a tiny little sock onto our baby's foot that measures heart rate and oxygen levels and then translates that into the comforting pulse of a warm green light, which then provides a priceless gift all throughout the night, peace of mind. That sock is made by a company called Owlet, and today you get to hear from a couple of the founders who, as young college students, defied the naysayers and revolutionized the world of pulse oximetry and baby monitors. The story starts with Kurt Workman, Owlet's CEO, whose wife was born with a congenital
2: heart defect. Kurt, his wife actually has had several heart surgeries. You can actually see a little scar coming out of her shirt. And it's, you know, it's just a constant reminder of, of a really harrowing experience that happened when she was a, a baby. This is Jordan Monroe, co-founder and chief innovation officer at Outlet. At about two days old, her mom just happened to go into the other room to find her not breathing. She picked her up, rushed her to the hospital, and she got heart surgery like the next day. This is a congenital heart defect. And so as Kurt's trying to prepare his family, he's thinking to himself, how am I going to just hopefully walk in at the right time if something gets missed?
5: When I got involved in Owlet, it kind of happened somewhat serendipitously. This is Zach Bompsta, co-founder and chief technology officer at Owlet. I was a junior in college studying electrical engineering, and I was involved in a couple of different startups. I walked into the electrical engineering lab wanting to work on One of those projects at the time our oldest child was three months old and literally the night before i bumped into kurt our three-month-old suddenly became very congested and started vomiting in the in the night and my wife and i were were worried sick needless to say we didn't sleep much i stumbled onto campus the next day a little bleary-eyed and bumped into kurt in the electrical engineering shop And him being a chemical engineer, I just asked him like, what are are you doing in here? And he explained to me that he was trying to build a prototype of a smart sock that he could use to detect baby's vital signs and notify parents if something was wrong. And when he said that, you know, I got the goosebumps. I like immediately what he was describing resonated with me because of the experience that I had lived through the night before. And I, I just knew as a parent, I felt that pain. And I knew that what he was trying to work on was something that was needed.
4: These early interactions would become a catalyst for Outlet's founders, but their journey was just beginning. Like any of us who take the opportunity to lead from where we are, Outlet faced incredible challenges in both developing the technology needed to succeed and opposition from existing industry
2: experts. We learn about this technology of pulse oximetry and think, are there more people that want to know if their baby's okay? To us, you know, it kind of seems crazy even asking that question,
5: but are people willing to to hire a product to kind of solve that problem for them. We had these two big questions. So we get into designing the smart sock and just thinking, okay, we've got to take this hospital grade technology called pulse oximetry, and we've got to shrink it down so it can fit on a baby's foot. And we've got to make it appropriate for monitoring in the home or in the nursery.
2: We called up, like, I don't know how we got connected to the world's like biggest pro in in pulse oximetry, but we said we wanted to do, and he just, we just got laughed out of the room kind of constantly.
5: You know, not too long after we started, we came across some pretty daunting literature known as the CHIME study. It was a study that was run in the late 80s, early 90s, that essentially monitors shouldn't be used to prevent SIDS or really to improve health outcomes in the home. So it really kind of caused us to question. Now here we are, young college kids with big eyes and big ambition, but we've got the clinical community and the industry experts saying, don't do what you're trying to do, it's already been tested. We clung to the fact that the CHIME study was conducted in the late 80s, early 90s. And we were now in, at the time, 2013. The technology for monitoring back then was big, clunky, bulky, and posed uh, several risks to the baby that was being monitored. And so we clung to this idea that, okay, that's what the CHIME study said back then. We're now 20 plus years into the future. Technology's different. Can we make a difference and, and maybe change the outcomes that the CHIME study had discovered?
4: So when faced with this kind of opposition, what do you do? How do you move forward? I asked Jordan and Zach about this
2: and they gave me some advice. I think having a clear vision for where you would like to go. I think at the time it was convenient that we didn't know any better. I think a great example is is solving for pulse oximetry. In, In the hospital, it's literally the size of a briefcase and it plugs into the wall and it has a wire that goes right to the baby. And we had to make it the size to fit on a baby's foot and we had to make it so that it was wireless.
5: One thing that's rung through throughout all of this is that uh, creativity loves constraint. Once we kind of staked out all of those constraints and said, all right, now go figure it out, that's where the creativity kicked in. And I think that's one of the advantages we had over maybe other pulse oximeter companies in the industry, where they didn't have those same constraints kind of laid out before them from the get-go.
2: I would add that there was a rev that never made it to light, that in that three-year period we actually worked and worked and got to a version that we launched on a crowdfunding campaign. You know, we had a whole bunch of people pay us for it and we almost shipped it to them. And actually quite luckily it came back with a bunch of bugs. If you, once you strapped it on the baby's foot, the Bluetooth range just went to basically nothing. And, and then if you used it like more than four times, the device just broke. And at this point we actually Upped our vision on what, what the products could be. We said, well, we're going to get scrappy and get something out there, and then we'll learn once, once it's out there. And had some mentors that said, you know what, build it right. What could this really be one day? And you don't want to like ruin that for the world. And we elevated our vision and we actually scrapped the whole first version. I mean, we'd spent a year and a half, like that was a hard conversation with the entire tech team to say, yeah, yeah, we worked super hard. It's almost done. It's got issues. Instead of just trying to like, iterate off of that, we like scrap the entire thing and start it over.
5: And we throw away a hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory that we were, we were all ready to start building this version. And we had to bite the bullet and say, it's not good enough.
2: Yeah. A box of just thousands of these, <laughs> these things that we were oh, going to build shoot. and ship to people, right. We had to throw them away.
4: This principle of having a clear vision of what you're setting out to do surfaced in other interviews around lead from where you are too. And it's the first of two components we've consistently seen in examples of people either successfully leading from where they are or enabling others to do so. A clear vision keeps you anchored during upheaval and enables people to stay the course. The second component we've seen after establishing a clear vision is allowing permission to try, to run, to figure it out, to take risks, even if that's giving permission to yourself. That's not always easy though it's common for people to feel inadequate, become intimidated or face imposter syndrome. As college students taking on a decades-old industry, I suspected Jordan and Zach had experienced some of this in their journey.
5: What I had found when I first started was that there was lots of lots of literature and documentation out there on the right ways to design a pulse oximeter. And I, I remember just thinking, it's already been done before. There's somebody that's better than me. I'm, you know, there's somebody that's more qualified than me to do this. But the reality is, oftentimes, because the work we're doing is, is often so nuanced, we're applying it in different ways and trying to deliver for a specific scenario. A lot of times, that work that you're doing, you just have to realize, like, you are the best person to do that work and just kind of getting over that imposter syndrome and saying, okay, I'm the one that's got to do this. Like, let's go. And I remember at one point, we had a lot of mentors that were telling us or suggesting to us that i shy away from the alarms. That doesn't seem like a liability you're going to want to tackle. You probably want to try to be the Fitbit for baby. And, you know, this was at a time when Fitbit had just had this huge breakout and kind of the quantified self was very trendy at the time. And because of the research we had done to stay close to our consumer, we saw that parents first need to know that baby's okay. That's their number one priority. They need to know in the moment that baby's okay. If you don't solve that problem, everything else is just fluff that isn't worth it. To them at the time. And so going kind of against all of the advice we were getting from mentors, we decided no, we're not going to be a Fitbit for baby. We're going to deliver peace of mind to mom and dad to let them know that baby's okay.
2: You know, one of the things we did right was really focus on on nailing the problem for consumers the way that they wanted it solved. And so fast forward to today, we're close to about a million people who have used the smart sock. And you know, we've made massive impacts in the lives of
5: thousands of families. Talking about leading from where you are, I think it's really easy when you get knocked off course or something unexpected comes up. I think it's easy to sit back and hope that somebody more qualified or an expert can step in and, and get you back on course. I mean, let's be real, most of the time that's that's not an option and it's gotta be something that you've gotta figure out. And I think for Aula, we realized pretty early on how slow the baby tech industry had advanced when compared to some of the other peer technology industries. We just felt like, look, there's nobody else that's going to come in and do this. And, and we as new parents feel this huge need that isn't being met and we need to go fill that need. And that passion, I guess, helped us realize that there aren't gonna be other experts that are gonna go do this. No one's gonna come in and do this for us. So we've gotta take this on ourselves and push through with that.
4: Zach and Jordan still lead Owlet today with co-founder and CEO, Kurt Workman. They continue to find ways to lead from where they are in the baby tech industry and also enable hundreds of team members at Owlet to do the same in their own capacity. In fact, one of their company values is act like owners, which turns out is really similar to the Bamboo HR value, lead from where you are. It encourages people to take initiative and care about their work as much as an owner would. When each individual understands that they have stake in the success of our organizations, great things can happen. You can learn more about Outlet, the Smart Sock, and other innovations at OutletCare.com.
3: As you know, this podcast is all about the employee experience. But as I listen to the Outlet story, I recognize a familiar pattern almost always seen with great products, an emphasis on the customer. For years, we've been obsessed with the customer experience. And in fact, you'll see a similar pattern with our next guest. The customer's experience is vitally important, especially to building products. But I think we should frame it like this. Customer experience is one of the many valuable outcomes of providing a great employee experience. In other words, if you focus on employee experience, strong customer experiences will come. Here's Gene Farrell with some great insights. His product wasn't life-saving per se, but I guess it depends on how much you value Soda Pop. Part 2. Soft drinks and two way doors.
1: Well, freestyle was probably one of the more transformative moments for me in my career because it was such, it was where I kind of pivoted from being someone that managed customers and relationships and marketing and, and really moving into product innovation.
3: Gene is the Chief Strategy and Product Officer at Smartsheet, a work collaboration software. And that freestyle he's referring to is Coca-Cola's famous touchscreen soda fountain machine, which was his brainchild. You've probably seen freestyles at some of your favorite restaurants. They offer 165 different drink options, as well as a seemingly endless array of custom flavors. Gene was given free reign by Coke to lead from where he was to innovate their fountain drink business. And innovate he did.
1: When I entered the picture and was given this opportunity to go lead this team, and I couldn't tell anybody what I was actually working on. You know, most people kind of look at that and go, mm, that sounds like the last job you have before you become maybe a consultant or a uh, <laughs> you know, entrepreneur or retired. And so it really was kind of a almost like founding a new company. It was kind of ground floor. Really, the first task was figuring out what could this be and what's the business case. And that started with kind of foundational consumer work to kind of understand where the new value was for for customers. And there were a couple of really interesting insights that came out of that that consumer work. First was consumers told us, if you're going to give me this much choice and variety, I want to pour my own drink because I don't actually trust the server in the sit-down restaurant or the the kid behind the counter at, at the fast food restaurant to actually get it right. The second thing they told us was they were really worried that if you gave them too much control over the composition or the recipe, that they would make a bad drink and then they would feel bad pouring it out. So then they'd have to suffer the consequences of their poor decisions, which I thought was quite, quite humorous. And then the third was just the sheer amount of variety that they wanted. From doing that foundational research, we then figured out, well, what do I need to go build then? And first and foremost, it was the equipment itself. How do you design a dispenser that's self-served, that can fit in in a food service environment or a theater or a stadium? that can deliver on this consumer process. And we leveraged partners from around the world that were the best in their fields. So we would use an expert in the area of microdosing, which microdosing was originally developed to deliver cancer drugs to children. So you have to be able to very, very precisely deliver a very small amount of liquid because we needed to create a perfect drink in a two ounce pour. For computer control systems, uh, you know, we worked with partners like Microsoft. If there was a need, Coke was great about helping us find the best partners in the world to actually go develop against whatever that need was. You know, we we did some initial industrial designs for the look and feel of the freestyle machine, and we felt they were they were cool, but they they didn't really have a lot of um, character or passion in them. We went to Italy and met with Pininfarina Design and Giugiaro and actually did a bake-off between two of the most famous sports car designers in the world. And the reason we chose sports cars is they can take big metal boxes and turn them into these beautiful works of art that inspire passion. And then it was on to, okay, how do you actually produce the product? How do you actually produce the packaging that goes into the product? And we ended up building a, a huge production facility uh, in Georgia to actually create the packaging fill the packaging a whole automated warehouse all in i think coca-cola spent north of half a billion dollars developing the freestyle over over about a 6 year period so it was it was it was pretty amazing and for me personally it was like getting an on the job degree in software development and industrial design and supply chain development it was just an incredible time of growth and innovation because we were really given the freedom to go solve each of the problems as they arose and take the signal we got from our customers and from consumers to really shape the final product. It actually over-delivered on what the business case was. People increased the number of times that they actually went out to eat because they wanted to have a freestyle machine. So traffic in restaurants would go up anywhere from three to 4%. Total beverage transactions went up about 20%. And actual volume per outlet because of all the refills went up by like 40 or 50%. And again, for context, we were a, we were a part of the business that was growing at three to 4% a year. So, you know, when, when you can see those kinds of lifts, it's just a dramatic step change in your business. It was, it was quite a journey.
3: Now, obviously your organization probably doesn't have the resources of Coca-Cola. We get that. But the principle still applies. By giving Gene the resources he needed, he was able to do remarkable things. Beyond the massive business success that came out of creating Freestyle, Gene learned valuable lessons that apply to all of us.
1: I would say the lessons that came out of my experience at Coca-Cola Freestyle, and I think they were reinforced at at Amazon Smartsheet, are really, I think, foundational to how you do lead from where you are. And, And it starts with having a confidence in your own ability to continuously learn and adapt to the challenges that business Puts in front of you. There's lots of times in life where you face situations that you know are brand new to you, and they might be brand new to the world. And you you have to have a, a sense of inner confidence that you can work through problems, and you can use judgment and and take input from lots of different sources, rely on experts maybe that have had similar situations. Second, almost all innovation has to start with the customer. When you understand the needs of your of your end user and the problems that they're facing or the things that they're trying to solve. And then you work backwards from their need to how your solution solves that problem. It's pretty hard to mess it up. It doesn't mean you get it perfect, but you get in the right ballpark. And then the third thing is really around this continuous iteration and learning, because you have a concept, you put that in front of a customer, they start using it and and they may validate nine of the 10 things you thought that were going to happen actually happen One of them turns out you were wrong, but then you're going to find 10 other things you hadn't even thought of. So a really simple example from our freestyle days was that a restaurateur would go from having a box of syrup for every flavor that they offered to having a set of ingredients that made up the final products. So when you have like five boxes of syrup in the back room, one for Coke, one for Diet Coke, one for Sprite, and you need to check your inventory, you can walk in the back and shake the box and kind of figure out how much is left super hard to figure out how much of the lime flavor is left in a freestyle machine, or even how much you're going to need, right? You got now suddenly 40 different uh, ingredients. So we looked at that problem. We said, wow, that's going to be really, really hard for a restaurant to figure out. But we actually have a computer in this machine and it's calling home every night to report the sales of that machine, the transactions that they had and also to get software updates And so we started thinking about that and said, well, geez, if it's calling home every night and I know exactly what they sold and I can translate that into how much of the ingredients that they had on hand they've used, I probably have the inputs to actually build a continuous replenishment system for my customers. And we actually, as part of our beta, we rolled out the first phase of a vendor-managed inventory program for our customers, so they never had to worry about how much lemon flavor they had, or how much Diet Coke base they had. Freestyle would calculate that for them, and we would actually ship it to them in advance of them needing it.
3: Not to sound like a leader of a tech company, but, well, technology closes so many gaps. And as we've learned acutely today, in order to know what kinds of technology we need to make, we need to understand our customers and their needs. Again, it starts with setting people free to lead from where they are.
1: The key to building a successful organization, regardless of size, is to really figure out how to inspire your teams and then empower them to take ownership in the business and feel comfortable taking smart risks and taking decisions. Amazon frames this really well in some of their leadership principles. One of the biggest challenges is that people in general tend to perceive more risk in taking a business decision than there actually is. Because for the most part, there are very few areas of business that are one-way doors. By one-way door, I mean a decision that is really difficult to undo. Almost all business decisions, you have an option to change your mind if you learn something new. You can introduce a new product and you might find out that your assumptions about the features were wrong. Or you might figure out that how customers use it is different than what you intended. Well, you can take that learning and you can pivot and you can change it and if you make a mistake most of the time it's pretty easy to to change your mind or to pivot and do something different and so the key lesson there is i try and encourage my teams to take more risks not be afraid to try new things you know test try things at a small scale and then and then expand from there and have comfort in the idea that if we mess up it's not tragic you're going to learn something and then you'll you'll be smarter and better from there and importantly When you empower them with that, really make sure that when they think about the decision, figure out upfront, is this a one-way door or a two-way door? Give you a great example. Pricing decisions, I think a lot of times, can be one-way doors. If you price a product too high, it's maybe a two-way door because you can always lower the price. But if you price a product too low, sometimes it's super hard to then go raise the price. And so you really just need to think through, is this something I can easily reverse? If it is, then you know you you have more freedom. If it's something that's not easily reversible, take your time, think it through, test it, talk to others.
3: Can you think of a better way to help your people grow? This mindset of learning and iterating only works if your employee experience is one of trust. We've all seen organizations where the employees just stay in their lane, stick to the status quo, and basically just avoid screwing up. They become stagnant, both the people and the organization. Of course, you probably don't want to just let your people literally do whatever they want. So how do you make sure they're testing out their ideas in a safe and responsible way? Gene has a great answer for that as well.
1: You have to have a really compelling idea of where you want to take your business. What's the mission of the team? What's the problem they're solving for their customers? And make sure everybody has a real common understanding and is grounded in your core value prop, both as, who you are as a company, and how you think about your customers and the mission that you're on. And I think when you do that, you can give them a lot more degrees of freedom to to apply their knowledge and their creativity. I I still get amazed today when I see the creativity that gets unleashed in, in the teams that I lead at Smartsheet. When you help enroll them in where you're trying to go, help them understand the core value prop that we're trying to solve for customers, and then kind of get out of the way.
3: Help them understand the values and get out of the way, exactly. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, get out of the way, set people free, values. Sure, 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 it all sounds nice, but it also feels vague. What specifically can I do to get my people to step up? In our final segment, we're gonna talk to an HR all-star who in his own work has found concrete ways to help his people spread their wings. And rest assured, that animal analogy I just gave was very intentional. Part three, world-famous zoo and world-famous HR.
0: No matter how set you are in your organization, in your culture, in your HR ways, there's always room for improvement. I'm always looking to not just rest on my laurels and, and my company's laurels, but to always make things better.
3: This is Tim Mulligan. In the world of HR, Tim Mulligan might just be one of the single best examples of a business leader who leads from where he is to go above and beyond what is perhaps expected of him. In 2004, Tim joined the world-famous San Diego Zoo as its chief human resources officer. During his time there, he led the charge in creating a world-famous company culture and employee experience. But when he joined the company, that outcome didn't seem very likely to some.
0: When I was offered the position, I knew some people who worked there. And I and I called and I looked around, I looked at Glassdoor, I talked to employees, I talked to managers, and they said, you know, don't take it. The zoo's great, the animals are great, but not known, you know, as much for their people practices. And so I took that as a challenge. And I remember I came in and I realized the employees hadn't been surveyed in 17 years and the morale wasn't great. And I don't think HR was looked at as a real strategic thought partner or, or a welcome place. So I took that as a challenge. I remember I told the board. Of San Diego Zoo, which is a really well-established board, and my employees in HR. That my goal was that within a year, we would be winning every any award there was out there for the best place to work in San Diego. And I also charged my team with a an edict that I wanted to make sure that we were the company folks looked to for best practices. And I wanted to be able to create best practices and not chase best practices. And that that's a big distinction for me. I I love the creativity part of the HR world. So. Some people left after that, they weren't, they weren't ready for it, they went up for it, they just had enough on their plate day to day and they weren't really thinking about that big transformation, that kind of culture reformation,
3: but, but I was. Tim Style, his approach centered around creativity is really just another way of framing the idea to lead from where you are. But I love the emphasis Tim puts on the creative side of things.
0: I go back to the experience and what can we do that helps our employees just feel inspired and connected and they look forward and wake up in the morning with this roar, like I talked about in, in this book, but this roar of purpose and passion and that's gonna make them excited to get to work. And so I think it, it lands on the shoulders of the HR team and not everyone needs to be like this. Not everyone needs to be as creative, always looking to, to make things different and change, to be you know ahead of the pack and trend setting, but that's how I operate. And I think that someone on your team needs to be doing that. So wherever I've worked, I've had some group of people or one person or more, or I let it, who is kind of the strategist with HR to say, okay, this training program is great. This bonus program is great. This comp program is great, but how can we make it better for the employees? And it's going to make people take note and be more excited and come to work here. So the creativity is just, it's in everything. Like I can't, I can't imagine rolling out a performance management program or a training program or a a perk or a recognition program that isn't 100% tailored to my organization. And some of them are you know, maybe not all that unique. It might be a relationship with a bank or something. But with that, how can you brand it as part of another program, tie people to what's cool about it, and also come up with the creativity side, which is what are we not offering that we should be offering that people would really benefit from? So maybe it's some sort of a conjoint type discussion of, Give up this and add this. And what do people really value? And why are you putting your money into this effort or your time into this effort when it's not really landing where you want it to land? Scrap it and put that energy into something else. So I think it's all about to me creativity in HR. You know, it's why I love HR. I think it's fun. If I wasn't having fun, I wouldn't be in this industry. But it should be fun every day to make things better for employees, make their careers better, bring in great people to the organization, grow and develop the people that you have, make sure that connection is there, that purpose and the sense of belonging, but just really have fun and create these unique experiences that they couldn't get anywhere else. And that's why they're there.
3: How do you create a culture
0: that empowers individuals to lead wherever they sit in the organization? How have you seen that done effectively? What comes to mind for me is what's HR's role in that? And I think that in HR, the job is to provide the tools possible to enable employees to be their best, wherever that might be, wherever they are, and to grow in their leadership skills at whatever level they are at. So I don't think it matters what level you're at, but you need to have the tools and the support to have a plan in place that leads in, in training and growing and developing and different opportunities and mentoring. I don't think it has to be elaborate or costly. I just think that you want to meet people where they are and make sure that they have the tools they need to lead from whatever point that might be. Something we did at the zoo that I really liked was we created a, a training program that we rolled out through all levels of the organization. We started off with the executive team and then went into the organization from there, like I like to do to show that everyone's gone through this program. We had every single exempt employee. So whether you are a manager of a whole division or just one person or just a program, but you had to create your own leadership brand and we walked them through that exercise. We did one for the organization, so we knew what, what we, we expected of our leaders, but then we had each person develop their own, And that was a really uh, meaningful experience, I think, for everybody to say this is how I hold myself out as a manager or a leader, regardless of where I sit in the organization. And then we rolled that out to kind of all the employees, too, to say this is for you and this is how you work. This is how you succeed. This is what you hold near and dear to you. And someone asked you what you were all about. This is what you would say. And that was a great exercise. And we've done similar things here at
3: Vulcan. I love the idea of giving everyone in the organization an opportunity to develop their leadership style, even if, and I guess especially if, their current title doesn't scream leadership. It actually reminds me of the now-famous origins of the Flaming Hot Cheetos. If you've never heard the story, in the mid-'80s, the snack foods company Frito-Lay was going through a bit of a rough patch. So their CEO, Roger Enrico, encouraged the entirety of their workforce of about 300,000 employees to, quote, act like an owner. I'm curious if anybody tried to park in his parking spot the next day. But anyway, a janitor named Richard Montanez heard the CEO's charge to act like an owner, and he decided to take it seriously. At the time, Richard felt there was a serious lack of snack food options for Latinos. And frankly, there was. So Richard went out and combined some of Frito-Lay's products, Cheetos, with a homemade spice mix. Then he got a meeting with the CEO, and voila, Flaming Hot Cheetos. His life was never the same, and the organization was far better off for empowering him to lead from where he was. We want to thank our guests today, Zach and Jordan, for their fearless determination to create technologies that experts told them were impossible. To learn more about Outlet, go to their website at outletcare.com. Gene Farrell, for teaching us that risks are opportunities that we shouldn't be so fearful of, and for making it easy, no matter where you are in the world, to get that Diet Coke with a perfect hint of lime. You can learn more about the cool work Gene is doing now at smartsheet.com. And finally, Tim Mulligan for setting the example of what an innovative HR professional looks like. You can learn more about Vulcan at vulcan.com. And don't forget to check out his book, Roar, Wherever You Buy Books. In our season finale, we'll talk about what it actually means to do the right thing in business. We look forward to connecting with you then.